Hi, everybody. I hope you're doing well. I don't know. I was going to say well, but I think okay is about as good as it gets. Uh, I'm doing okay, but I'm doing better. I'm doing better than I was, and I'm feeling better than I did. And I don't, well, I do know why, but that's a long story. But anyways, I'm just hoping the best for you during this COVID thing. And this is a really weird time. My son and I, my sons and I, my daughters, my family, but we've been talking about how strange this thing is. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And and either has this uh, country in our lifetimes even come close, you know. I have uh, a dear friend, Helen, who is, uh, we share a birthday. She's the oldest member of our church community. She's uh, 99 years old. And she uh, she remembers the Great Depression. So I can talk to her about those years. And uh, it's literally a different time. See, I mean, I feel like, you know, pretty soon we're going to be the the literal Waltons again. You know, everybody's going to be living in one house and we're going to just be trying to eke out a living, uh, eating simple food and sharing common meals. Uh, I, I don't know what the future holds uh, in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, but I know there'll be a time where we come out of it. I don't know what it's going to look like. For me, it's going to be a long haul. I am, uh, because of my condition and my uh, uh, pre-existing condition and my autoimmune disease, I am going to be, uh, I know, living a different life until I can get vaccinated. I get vaccinated regularly. If I don't, uh, uh, the common flu could kill me. Uh, pneumonia could kill me. So I get both those vaccinations regularly. And of course, COVID would be uh, the most deadly threat I've ever encountered. And I never saw it coming. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping I can get through these next 18 months. I'm going to be obviously forced to social isolate more than everybody else and to be careful and my family's being careful as anybody who has somebody that's high risk already knows and uh, I'm going to do my best to get to the other side and uh, get to the place where I can get vaccinated and uh, begin to, to function again in a, in a more open manner. In the meantime, that's going to change a lot of things. So you might be seeing a lot of more of these if you care to. So I got a message today for you and it's about Jesus. I like talk about Jesus. And I like to teach and I like to reveal things. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a perpetual student and hence I'm a perpetual teacher. I like to share what I've learned. What I have learned has deconstructed many of the things I used to believe and that's not been easy. It's been a painful thing. I've gone through a very uh, painful deconstruction. I'm not sorry for it. Uh, I'm, I am not what I would call a Christian today. Not by what the standards of of 21st century America, what it means to be a Christian. I am not an evangelical Christian in any way, shape, or form. I do not believe what evangelical Christians believe. I do not uh, adhere to what they adhere to. Um, and I'm not sorry for that. I'm glad to be out of that. For me, I look back uh, and it's been one of the most painful parts of my deconstruction is that I spent so much time, I mean, uh, a couple decades running around trying to uh, chase people down and convince them that they needed Jesus or else they were going to hell. Uh, to me, one of the most painful things is the fact that I wasted so much of my life belonging to a cult. And uh, if you come out of a cult, and many people have that I know, and I've spoken with them, and I'm not going to mention the names, but they come out of a system that is cultish. Control your thoughts, your mind, you you know, you just... Anyways, sum, summing it up, when you come out of it, it's difficult. Uh, it's not always easy, but it's better. I mean, it is for me. I have no regrets about that. Living in a cult is easier than living outside of a cult because you can have preconceived notions of everything and the way it should be. 
uh, and uh, it gives you a, a very safe framework from which to operate. Uh, but I don't, I can't, once you see, you can't unsee. Once you learn the truth, you can't bury it. Um, and when I say learn it, I mean actually learn it. Like actually be open, listen, study, and go, ah, okay, I got it now. Once you see the truth, you can't unsee it. I think of the, uh, the Germans that were in denial about what had taken place during the Holocaust and in denial about uh, their their beloved uh, Germany and their Führer, you know, when they were actually these common folk who believed in this, this patriotic bullshit were dragged to Dachau and Auschwitz and were forced to be eyewitnesses of what actually was taking place there. Uh, once you see that, you cannot see it. Um, and then, and then the world shifts and that's difficult. But anyways, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about some of the misconceptions about him and, uh, in the Bible and see what we can learn from that. I think there's some, some things we can learn and take from that that really do affect our lives in a very positive way. First of all, uh, our notion of Jesus is very different of the reality. Okay. And, uh, you know, I grew up with Jesus, watching Jesus in TV movies, and I didn't go to church, but I did watch movies. I did see pictures and artworks depicting Jesus, and Jesus always came across to me as he is presented today as a, uh, a fairly handsome dude, good-looking, well-kept, clean. Um, he came across as a guy that was of a very manly, large stature. You know, Jesus looked 6'2", um, and, uh, and, and even in artwork, he looked very Western very Western European. Uh, he didn't look like a Middle Easterner. And and all these things, oh, I remember like there's a, a famous piece of artwork. It's a wonderful piece of art because it's trying to show a different side of Jesus. It's called the laughing Jesus. And in this you, art depiction of Jesus, this profile of Jesus, a headshot, you see him laughing and he's just got this amazing, he's handsome, he's got the high cheekbones, killer trim beard, beautiful thick hair, and a set of pearly whites that just knock your socks off. He looked really happy. But that's not Jesus. Jesus was a Galilean peasant. He grew up in the Galilee uh, 2,000 years ago, an area that was occupied by the Romans, and the Romans were brutal. And being an, an occupied nation under a brutal regime like Rome that taxed the living hell out of everybody, the peasantry were subsistence people. They literally were on the edge of starvation continually and fear of terror continually. This was the reality of Jesus' life growing up in the Galilee, his first 30 years. Consequently, we know that the peasants had a very low caloric intake. In fact, uh, they got the bulk of their calories from bread and wine, uh, which obviously Jesus uses metaphorically uh, many times in, in the scriptures and then ultimately uh, relates it to himself. Bread and wine, they were the staples, the foundation of caloric intake for the peasantry. That left a very serious protein deficiency. Jesus was protein deprived and a peasant and dirt poor and on the edge of starvation. Now, when you look at the, the, the excavations and, 
and there is a there is a ton of excavations I've taken where we can actually look at body sizes of the second temple time period of Jews. Uh, they were not of large stature. You know, Jesus was probably five four, five five. I know that's going to blow your gaskets. Probably a lot of you. He wasn't. He wasn't six two. There was no six two walking around. Jesus was a little dude, five four. He would have been scrawny, skinny, emaciated even. His ribs would be showing. Uh, he would have. Uh, he, he would have been dark complected. His hair would have been really uh, unhealthy. Because his body would have traditionally grown up being riddled with parasites. That was very common. There were no doctors. That's why Jesus' healing ministry for three years was so big, so to speak. Uh, because the common folk, the peasantry, didn't have doctors. They didn't have health insurance. There was no medications. You got worms. You got parasites. You suffered with them and through them, and they ravaged your bodies. Uh, they did an excavation at Quamrong, amongst many. Quamrong is the Essene community outside of Jerusalem, down into the uh, Jordan Valley uh, by the Dead Sea and this Essene community. They found a lot of combs. What was amazing is in almost all the combs, they found lots of parasites. They found lice and nits and lice eggs. Jesus' hair would have been riddled often with lice. That was just a communicable parasite that was common. His disciples would have had the same thing. They were all dirt poor, uh, maybe with the exception uh, of a couple of them, okay, uh, and 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 this was the normal status. They've done on these excavations where they've looked at many bodies. Uh, they have not yet found even close to uh, a peasant, a Jewish peasant of the Second Temple time period, having a full set of teeth. They're all missing teeth. Like you, you, it's like, yeah, they don't fifty fifty is about as good as it gets. Uh, as you get older, especially. And Jesus was old. Jesus was considered in his day, at the age of 30, dying at 33, a very old man. He, he, he was not a young buck. He was old. Uh, I could give you the statistics on that, on lots of work that has been done on the uh, peasantry of the Second Temple time period, the Jewish peasantry, and you didn't live long. And uh, if you were 30, you, you did pretty freaking great. You know, that's why you were, you were considered a man at 13 and you were married at 14 and uh, working your trade. Jesus was an old man, a single old man. So he would have been emaciated, living on the edge of starvation. He would have had missing teeth. He would have been uh, battling parasites and he was always starving. They were always starving. Uh, no wonder <laughs> Jesus uh, liked to hang out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and meal share with them. He would eat meals with them. That was like something no good Jew did. He did it all the time. One of the benefits was is tax collectors had coin. So did prostitutes. In the strata of society, Though they were outcasts, they actually had coin. They ate better than the peasantry. And that pissed a lot of people off. They actually ate better than a lot of the aristocracy 
as a matter of fact. The, the Pharisees, the really astute ones, they were, you know what they did? They got so mad at seeing Jesus going to banquets of tax collectors and eating with the banquets at the banquets of tax collectors and prostitutes where he was feasting. Um, they called him at one point a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors. I was like, they tried to slam him. Um, Jesus was friendly with all of those people. He was in with them. And he also ate. <laughs> so did his disciples. That really pissed people off. Uh, Jesus was on welfare as a, as a peasant Jew. He definitely lived and took handouts. Now, we see a passage in, in Matthew 12 that makes it very clear to us. Matthew 12, 1, it says, uh, At the time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. What is that all about? Well, in, in, in the big five, the five books of Moses, in the Torah, in Leviticus 23 and 19, there are laws that are thrown down that if you are a farmer, if you're w well enough to do, and this is all relative, that you have a farm and you grow a field and you harvest a crop, um, you are still way better off than the peasant. And you can't take the whole crop. It is God's command that you live the corners and the edges and the sides of the fields unpicked so that specifically the poor can eat of it. And Jesus is seen in this scene on welfare. He's getting government cheese with his disciples. They're that poor and they're starving. So... Now, the problem was it took place on Shabbat, on Sabbath, uh, and the Jews said you can't work on the Sabbath. Well, that was one of the Decalogue, the, the big top ten, right? Ten commandments, you know, all that stuff, right? Don't work on the Sabbath. Well, the question next then begs, well, what, what is work? And that's where it came down to the nitty-gritty, and they had, you know, all kinds of hundreds of stipulations on what was or wasn't considered work. Well, picking grain and breaking the chaff off of it and eating it was considered work. That was meal preparation, and you couldn't do that. You had to do that before sunset on the, on the Sabbath, all right? You prepared your meal. In other words, think of it this way. Uh, you got a bag of pistachio nuts. You can eat pistachios on the Sabbath. You just can't crack the shell open and eat it. That would be considered work, meal preparation. So before Sabbath hit and the sun set, you would take your pistachios and you crack all the shells and you take out all the nuts and you put them in the bowl and then you could eat it on Sabbath. Jesus wasn't doing that. And these guys went freaking nuts. So what does Jesus do? He savages them. Why? Because he can. And what does he use? He uses exactly what they use against him. The Bible. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? David was being chased, hunted down, starving with his men. It says he entered the house of God, a temple, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest, as the Bible said. Then he says, or haven't you read in the law or the Bible? that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple actually are desecrating the Sabbath. 
They're working. And yet they're innocent. And then Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And a lot of people will say, well, that's Jesus. No, it's not just Jesus. It's what Jesus signifies. What is Jesus is trying to amplify. And that's mercy. That God is merciful. He says, something greater than the temple is here. And then he says, if you had only known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, he uses the Bible and quotes it right against him. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the bigger thing that's here. And if you had known that, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus savaged them with their own scriptures. He did a lot of that. Why? Because the Bible is incongruent. It contradicts itself constantly. And that's why you can do whatever you want with the Bible. That's why I don't believe in Bible worship. I call it Bible idolatry, right? The Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is the words of people about God at different various stages and times in history, of ancient history. And how they were wrestling with these kind of issues in their lives. It can be used for good or evil in Jesus' day or today. Uh, you can use it to enslave people in the South, American South, antebellum South. The South used the Bible, the same Bible that the North read, and they used the passages to enslave human beings, to, uh, to oppress women. You can use the Bible to do both those things. You can use the Bible to justify your revenge. You can do anything you want with the Bible, good or bad, and justify it with, quote-unquote, scripture. And that's what they were doing in Jesus' day, and he just savaged them with their own scriptures. And I like doing that myself. Uh, the Bible is not inspired, but there are moments where people in the Bible say something inspirational. Something that, the, that we do see in the Bible is this tremendous trajectory upward and onward. I mean, we like to look at the Old Testament laws and blast them because a lot of them are just crazy, right? Stoning people, and, uh, stoning adulterers, stoning people who they call are into witchcraft. and all, I mean, just anything, stoning a rebellious son. Your son rebels against you, take him out to the city gate, get the elders and stone him to death, you know? I'm not recommending that, okay? So, and I'm not even saying it was even used. Maybe it was just a scare tactic, trying to get their rebellious kids under control. I kind of understand that. But what you do see in the Bible is even back then, many of these laws were revolutionary. There were no other cultures that said, take care of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. I mean, that passage we just read in Deuteronomy, telling people, don't take the whole crop, leave a bunch for the poor. <laughs> there would have been a lot of people going, what? That's unbelievable. Even thou shalt not murder. That would have been an innovation back when that was written. Entire cultures would have gone like, what? Not murder? Why not? We always murder. Those people over there, they got a bunch of stuff I want. We need it for our village. We just go over there and kill them all. What's wrong with that? Might makes right. So, anyways, he savaged them. And you see that throughout the scriptures. You see contradiction 
and scripture being used against scripture, uh, especially by the progressives that are trying to take this thing and push it upward. I'll give you another example. Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is a eunuch. Now, what's a eunuch? That's a man without his appendage and without his testes. Uh, that can happen a few ways. They are addressing one issue, which is accidental, right? They got crushed. Accident. The donkey knocked your balls off. But the consequence is your damaged goods. You cannot go into the temple and worship God. The other is this issue of the eunuch. Now, what's a eunuch? In the ancient times, it was a man who, or child, that was purposely castrated. Why? Well, eunuchs served an important uh, uh, place in ancient societies. To be a eunuch by profession was actually a great job. It meant you had food, luxury, uh, opportunity to move up. You had social status. Eunuchs were used, these are males who have been castrated, uh, for protection of hierarchy females. Well, because they're safe, right? If the appendage is cut off, the testes are taken off, no seed can come into a royal bloodline or into a blue bloodline. So these were male attendants to female royalty or uh, at least higher society. And uh, they, it was a great job. I mean, considering jobs back then. Uh, many were emasculated by their parents and given up to be eunuchs because they knew they'd have a great life as small children. And uh, they grew up, many of them, very effeminate. And, and that became an issue. But often they were, confidences were given, I mean, they became really close to the female that they were guarding or serving or attending and, uh, and, and had the ear often of, of the person, the royal person. Uh, but when you became a eunuch, you were not allowed to enter the temple. You were damaged goods. It says so right here in Deuteronomy 23.1. I just read it to you. Now, the funny thing is, is that that changes. In Isaiah 56, four and five later, a progressive writes this, saying this is God speaking. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who are faithful, who choose what pleases me, follows me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Wow. Is the Bible contradicting itself? The prophet Isaiah is speaking for God and saying, like eunuchs, you love God, you follow God. Not only are you allowed in the temple, you're memorialized on the wall, on the inside, forever and ever. That's progressive. That's a trajectory like this. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. We see uh, Jesus uh, has come, he's gone, and now uh, in the book of Acts, Philip is encountering an angel. Chapter 8, 
And it says, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on the road, the desert road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official. They're always important. This guy's gone up the ladder. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he's a proselyte. He is worshiping the God of Israel. And he goes all the way from Ethiopia, not a short journey, by chariot and entourage to worship on a high holy day. He goes there. He worships God there. But he's not allowed inside. He's an outsider. But still worshiping as a eunuch. And it said on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the progressive, who had just written that about eunuchs. You know, I was wondering, like, maybe, you know, was he reading that passage? And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot, stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And how can I, the eunuch said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As he traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Immersed into the new thing, the greater thing that is here. The mercy and the love of God is expressed through Jesus and, and joining this movement that Jesus is starting. Well, that's a great question. What can stand in the way? Missing your balls. To a Jew, you're not allowed in assembly. You just experience that. But to the new Jesus movement, this progressive trajectory, Isaiah is taken and it's ramped up to a new level. And he gave orders to stop the chariot and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. Wow, pretty progressive. This is a gay pastor. <laughs> well, these incongruent teachings and these, these, these conflicts uh, leave us with a choice of which direction we're going to go. And some people can take that and some people can't. And it's always been that way. In all the synoptic gospels, we just see this scene, a parable that Jesus teaches about wine and wineskins. In Mark, the earliest gospel, just in the second chapter, so it gets into it pretty quickly. Uh, Jesus says this, he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. What he's saying is something that everybody knows. If you take a new piece of cloth and you put it into an old piece of cloth and then you wash it, the new cloth does what? It shrinks, right? It's like, that's why we buy pre-shrunk jeans so we know how it fits. Uh, we don't take them home, like it fit good in the dressing room and then we go wash our jeans and we're like, I can't get in the damn thing because it shrinks. And that would rip away and and make make the, uh, the tear worse. And even worse, you waste new cloth. And then he says, like it. So no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What's he talking about there? Well, you have wine, new wine, and you have old wine. When you put new wine, you put new wine that is going to go through the fermentation process into a new fresh wineskin. Why? Because when it fermentates, it expands and the new skin will stretch with it. It'll max out with it, and it won't burst. 
Now you take an old skin that's already been stretched and you pour new wine into it and you let it fermentate, guess what happens? It blows the old skin up. It destroys an otherwise good bag and all the wine is lost. And this is what Jesus is using as a metaphor about the progressive trajectory. That when you pour new wine into an old skin, it's going to blow it apart. I certainly know that to be true. And I spent a lot of time doing that, for which I feel bad. And had I known better, I, would have, I wouldn't have done it that way. Um, but it wasn't... It wasn't willfully or purposefully done. It was just like my evolution, my progression took place in a church that just couldn't handle that. So when I learned something new and I'm like, oh my God, let me tell you about this. I was pouring this new wine into old skins and all I saw was people blowing up left and right in front of me. They couldn't handle it. Now, some were open. Some were open-minded, even some of the old people that were there and had been there a long time. Some of them were more pliable and they would listen and they let that thought expand, that teaching expand, and they expanded with it. That's great. But that's what Jesus is talking about. Something new. And Jesus was bringing a new movement, a new understanding of God. A new, a, a, a new understanding of scriptures. A new way of doing life. Something greater and better was coming. And we need to try to remain open to be the new wineskins. And that's not easy. You know, it's tough. Change is tough. But uh, Jesus is bringing and introducing to us new systems, new paradigms uh, of ethical living. And, and these values are life-giving and inclusive and safe and about just and common good. It's about everyone. It's about compassion and inclusion. And not just serving the privileged and elite. You know, I'm struck by U.S. society often. Um, it's a system that strives for justice, right? We say it in our pledge. With liberty and justice for all. We are a socialist democracy. A lot of people don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear the word socialist. But we already live in a socialist democracy. In other words, we have freedoms and we have the ability to vote, participate, um, and we cooperate with each other. People say, I'm against socialism. I'm like, no, you really aren't. Socialism. Socialism is when your neighbor looks out the window and sees your house is on fire and calls the fire department. And the fire department comes over. And they rush into your home and they rescue your children and they resuscitate them on the front lawn and they put the fire out. That's socialism. The fire department is a socialist structure. Socialism is when you uh, submit to your insurance policy the damage and they pay for it and you can fix your home. That's socialism. Insurance is a socialistic program. We all cooperate in it. We're all looking out for each other. Capitalism is where your insurance company finds a clause in the small print and says they're not going to pay out. 
and they get to keep all your money. I mean, some of you probably gone through that with car accidents, right? And dings, like, you don't want to even report it to the insurance company because they're going to raise your premiums. They're not really doing what they're supposed to do. They're going to punish you, even though, oh, I've been a great driver for 14 years, and then I get into a fender bender. I don't want to report it because my premiums are going to go up. My God, don't we all know that? Uh, but the U.S. is really funny, especially today, because like right now the word socialism or so democratic socialism is thrown around like some kind of cuss word. It's a slur. It's a slur. It's hilarious. Um, Donald Trump just sent out all these relief checks with his, his signature on it, which made me laugh so hard because he uses that word socialism as a slur. That's about as socialistic as you can get. FEMA, the CDC, FBI, you go through all the agencies, CIA, I don't care. The U.S. military is the biggest socialist program funded on the planet. There's nothing even close. They're all subsidized by our tax dollars. Police force, schools, public libraries, public parks, national parks. Roads, the 101, the 10, the highways. These are all socialist structures. These are structures that we have combined as a society to say these are important things. We need to all pool together our resources. That's why I don't understand the whole thing about healthcare. Why does that have to be privatized and capitalistic? Why can't we socialize that? It's always worse. No, it's not. It's not. Now, are there better? Yeah. Oh, sure. Nothing's perfect, but something's better than nothing. And a lot of people have absolutely nothing. But let's lunch, let's cut lunch meals for kids, please. Man, I, it just shows me America, and it's not even new, but it's new to people today. These ideas and these concepts, like these people are like old skins and there's like, no way. Universal healthcare. They just blow up. Like, no, dude, that's just looking out for each other. Jesus was calling for a more compassionate, just, and inclusive society. And you know what? That is exactly why they killed him. They didn't murder him because he was a nice guy. They killed him because he was a threat and speaking truth to the powers. Because the powers only cared about one thing. Wealth. They were the one percenters. Jesus shows this uh, in, in his critique of Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis means in the Latin, the law of the claw. Uh, it was the law of retaliation. It's very common in ancient cultures and traditions. We see it written. It is summed up by eye for eye, tooth for tooth in the Jewish tradition. Now, these laws, we believe, were written because we didn't want revenge to uh, exceed the punishment to exceed the crime, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was equality. I remember speaking to a gang member in prison, and he said, you know, when you do a drive-by and you kill one of ours, we go and do a drive-by and we kill 10 of yours, five of yours, three of yours. We go above and beyond. We're going to try to punish you. Whoa, wow. We do the same thing. The U.S., 9-11, we lost 3,000 people. Tragedy, huge tragedy. Mind-numbing. So we retaliated. How did we go about that? Killing about 600, 
thousand or more, or maybe a little less, or maybe a lot more, but certainly not a lot less, men, women, and children, the vast majority of them, not combatants, non-combatants. Men, women, and children had nothing to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, collateral damage, because we wanted to teach them a lesson. You kill 3,000 of ours, we'll kill 600,000 of yours. That's why people believe that Lex Talionis was so important. May the punishment fit the crime. But Jesus brought something new to that. He said, okay, so will that, while that may be, can we think with even a little more imagination? Because maybe we can do better than just the punishment fitting the crime. Maybe we can do just better than even justice. Maybe we can do something of a restorative sense. So he teaches us, you have heard it said, where? In the Bible? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not use retaliation against an evil person. Instead of anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Now, a, a, a slap to the right cheek would usually be a backhanded, take in a right-handed world, which it was, that's a backhand, so it's an insult as well. Uh, he's defining that. So if you get insulted, don't go tit for tat. Turn the other cheek. That's also kind of an act of disobedience, right? Like, oh, that's the best you got? Come at it again. He says, if anybody wants to see you and take your coat, hand over your shirt as well. You walk out of the courtroom and you just lost and you just got wrecked in a frivolous lawsuit and they think they have the upper hand. They've taken your coat. Jesus is saying, take your shirt off in the court. Just throw it to them and say, hey, you might as well take it all. But you can't take me. So it's, it is an act of rebellion, but it's also an act of like, I'm not going to seek revenge for this. You have heard it said, where? In the Bible, love your fellow Israelite and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies too. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because God gives the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be merciful as God is merciful. Here's this new thing that Jesus is bringing. It's bigger than the temple merciful God, a way to live with justice as well as mercy and use the two to bring restorative justice. I remember I was uh, working with a kid uh, who was uh, in, in college going to be a doctor. He was a great athlete and he got into a drunken driving accident and it's the first time he got into real tr trouble and he got into big trouble and when he got into trouble, he um, well, he, he, he hit this other car and a couple of women were in it and they were badly hurt. Uh, they had to have like their legs reconstructed. One of them had like bad breaks through her legs and had to have a reconstruction done. Went through a lot of pain and suffering. And uh, at the trial, I was, I did work with this kid, restorative work. And I was put on the witness stand to testify what I thought. And I did not diminish the pain and the suffering of those people. I embraced it. Actually, I repeated it. But then I, I also said, but here's what I think. Throwing this young man, who's otherwise been a pretty good kid, throwing this young man who's really smart and going to college, who has so much potential to do good in the world, throwing them in prison for a few years, I don't, I don't, see, I don't see the upside to that. Probably going to wreck his life. 
probably going to rob him of his potentials. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I don't think it's actually going to help anybody. Not him, not the defendants. I say, let him do work. Let him do good work, volunteer work, restorative work. Let him get a job and dock that salary, or at least a good portion of it, towards restitution towards the individual parties that have been hurt. Do that for the next three years, and I think you're going to have a better result. Now, they weren't too happy about that. I understand the defendants. I get it. They wanted their pound of flesh, and I get that. I do. I'm not saying it wouldn't be the same way. But at the end of the day, the judge went with my recommendation. And um, ultimately, I wish I could have been there when the first paycheck came in. <laughs> that first month's worth of paycheck came to those victims. They might have gone like, this is a little better. Jesus thought to lead us upward, to evolve from doing life through revenge and look at possibilities. He looked at us to live the golden rule. Now, you know the golden rule. It's in many sacred ancient traditions. It's written this way in the Bible. In everything you do, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this was the intended goal of the law and the prophets. Wow. Do unto others as you have them to do. And then you, you, would, you would read this, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate of the golden rule. For the gate of revenge, the gate of revenge, destruction is wide. And the road to revenge is easy. But it leads to the whole world being blind, toothless, annihilated. And many are presently on that path. I'm amplifying this a little bit for better understanding for you. Then he said, for the gate of the golden rule is narrow and the road is hard, but it leads to life. And so few presently have discovered it and are traveling on it. I think of those victims of this drunk driver. Um, I'm thinking that that path that more narrow path was actually far more beneficial to them. And I'm thinking of this young man continuing his studies and doing well and being on probation and coming off of that and becoming a doctor and succeeding is better for the world. Others apprehended this. Gandhi said, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. Martin Luther King said, the old law of the eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. And then my favorite prophet, uh, Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof. If you love musicals and I love them, you'll remember that movie. Uh, when talked about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he said the whole world then would be blind and toothless. Can you see this applying today? Can you see this new system bursting through, this new understanding of restorative justice? Something to consider. There's always been voices like myself calling for new wine into old skins, and for the 2,000 years they failed, like I'm sure I'm failing. There's no doubt about it. Very in this COVID crisis weeks ago, um, the president said for states to figure out what they needed as far as ventilators and protective equipment, um, it was the state's issue they, that, that the government wasn't a uh, clerk to help this out. So what happened? He created a competitive system. So here's a number of ventilators. So what happened? All these states started bidding on them. What, what was the result? Escalating costs, more profits. One state would win, 
They'd pay more money than the other states had. They'd get the ventilators. That's not a just system. That's not uh, restorative. It's not only inefficient, as many people have said. It's downright immoral. The crisis has certainly shown us that the rich people, they're not going to be dinged. Not Wall Street, not the banks, certainly not. And right now they're calling about like bailing out big oil. <laughs> big oil getting bailed out. A barrel of oil down is minus dollars. There's so much it's free. Now the irony being that despite that plunge, have you ever noticed that like when the oil plunges? Now this is a plunge. We haven't seen a plunge like this. It's like negative now, like oil costs nothing. They're paying you to take it. Um, but guess what? When I go down the street to get gas, it's still three bucks a, a gallon. <laughs> In California, anyways. I know some of you have been getting relief, like 99, I'm worth 98 cents. I'm like, not in California, still three bucks a gallon. This, this system, uh, this capitalist system that we live in, uh, well, let me just tell you, there's been a lot of collateral damage through it. It serves and profits the wealthiest. What does that say to our values as a nation and as people? What do we value more? This is a call to value people over profit. It's a call to reclaim humanity. That's what Jesus was calling us to do. Our system from groceries to uh, mortgages and health insurance is built to keep people, the working class people, working to produce for the one percenters. It's a system of bread and circuses. Wealth disparity has never been greater. The rich have never been getting richer even in the midst of this unprecedented calamity. And that's not to say that our economy isn't a important concern. It's just what our values stand for. It's a legitimate concern. I'm concerned about the economy. We need to keep the economy going. But there's a, there's a way to do that. It's not about like... Um, win or losing. It's not about like, we got to lose or the, the rich have to lose so that, that the poor can win. It's really about how can we all win? There's nothing wrong with rich people. I've got plenty of friends that are rich people. Being wealthy is okay. It's the greed. It's the when, it's, when is enough enough? Man, what would it look like if our society would care about each other? the values would change. We prioritize equity, justice, love, compassion, and people above profit. Well, honestly, I'm not giving much hope to that. Not going to change. Um, but neither am I going to shut up. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to continue to speak out his prophetic vision for the world 2,000 years later. After 2,000 years of failure, I'll continue sharing this failing message. God bless you.